0: Good morning, Redemption Arcadia. So thankful that you are here. I sound like the Wizard of Oz. Would you stand? We're going to worship the Lord this morning. He is a holy God, the only wise God. Let's worship him together. you this morning, we praise you the name that is above every other name, Jesus. God, we praise you that you've made a way of salvation for us. Lord, and we confess that we oftentimes still war against the flesh. God, we confess that we oftentimes still desire things that So we come before you, a holy God, broken. We humble ourselves before you, God, in need of saving. Be glorified in us, in Jesus' name. Let's read this confession from Romans 7, verses 21 to 23. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. God, we need you. in Romans 7. God assures us of his salvation. Let's read this verse together. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.
1: i uh-huh. Story.
2: amen We pray with me oh our gracious heavenly father we we praise you we thank you for that truth Lord that that the victory is won that you have redeemed us Lord for the abundance of your grace and your mercy Lord we love you and we praise you we ask now that you would bless this day That you would bless this time together, Father, that you would anoint Frank and use him, Lord, to to preach your word and its truth, all for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. Would you take a moment and uh, greet one another as respectfully and as kindly as you can imagine under the circumstances? That looked very respectful and kind. Hi, Ben. Um, well, good morning. My name is Joe. I'm one of the elders here on behalf of Redemption Church. Just want to say we're glad that you're here. Uh, a little bit about Redemption Church. We are one congregation with, um, I'm sorry, we are one church with 10 congregations locally led. Uh, we are gospel-centered and outward focus, and we believe all of life is all for Jesus. If you're new here today, a special welcome to you. We'd love to to meet you and hear your story and tell you a little bit more about us. We'll be at the uh, Connect Desk um, after the service, or there will be elders and deacons and pastors in the wings. Just track one of us down. We'd love to talk to you. Uh, A couple announcements today. One, we have the men's luncheon coming up on May 19th. The details are on the website. Please RSVP if you're going to be there um rsvp as soon as possible so stephanie can can uh, coordinate the food for that um i hear it's going to be delicious surprise coming and second is we have uh, baptism after this service uh in between services so stick around and watch someone be baptized today and celebrate with them uh, i think that is it so please if you would stand again for the reading of god's word
3: Good morning. Today's reading is from John 11, verses 45 to 57. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what she did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. This is the reading of the word. You may be seated.
4: All right. Thank you, Sherry. Morning, Arcadia. Great to see you all. If you're new, we are glad you're here. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here uh, as well. Four pastors big staff. It's a wonderful place to be. So uh, before we get into the passage, which I would encourage you to open your Bibles, please, whether it's a book Bible or a Bible on your phone, uh, please open to John 11. That's the only place we'll be today. But it's going to be a few minutes before we get there. I'm a mess. There's a bunch of stuff to talk about. Um, First of all, really excited. um, And all of it's good. I'm just a mess. So you'll see in a minute. So we're excited that there is a baptism after this service. So please stick around for that and celebrate with uh, Stuart. Uh, Second of all, um, it it never escapes us that, uh, because people always tell us this, um, that if you look around Redemption Arcadia, we are what you might call a fairly young, demographically, demographically young church. Uh, meaning um, we have a very wide range of ages here. There isn't just one generation here, which we love and we believe is the biblical, the biblical vision of a faith community, that it would be multi-generational. So we're excited about that. Um, but in the midst of all the, I mean, we do a ton of weddings, a lot of premarital stuff. We have a thriving children's ministry. Uh, but in the midst of that, we can't forget that there are also... Um, people here that are more like sort of my uh, vintage, I guess, or maybe even a, a, an older vintage, a more seasoned vintage. So um, I'm just curious. Is there anybody here who might be 89 years old today? Okay, stand up, Marcy. Nobody can see you. So if you, don't, if you don't know Marcy, uh, I've known her for 20 years. Uh, her father was a pastor, uh, so she grew up in a fishbowl, she says. Um, what, one of the interesting things about her, if you ever get a chance to talk to her about this, she was an usher at, it's Bel Air Presbyterian, correct? Yeah. She was an usher at Bel Air Presbyterian Church for a number of years, and her section was uh, often, I mean like often occupied by Ronald and Nancy Reagan and so she got to know them quite well uh, too. And so if you ever want to know anything about Ronnie and Nancy, be sure to talk to uh, Marcy because they just opened up to Marcy and told them everything. And then um, Marcy has told me for 20 years that God has specifically told her that her one ministry in the church is to keep me humble. And let me tell you something, she's really good at it. So. Anyway, we celebrate with you, Marcy. Thank you. Um, Thanks for letting us uh, do that. Uh, Okay, so here's the other thing. Um, I hope I can even get through this. Uh, So many of you know that our youngest daughter, Darby, uh, has been pregnant with our first grandchild, which we've been very excited about. And um, Jackie left Sunday because Darby was being induced Sunday night, which she was. Last Sunday night, she was. And she went into labor, I'm sorry, she was induced Sunday morning, she went into labor Sunday night and was pushing and everything was going fine Monday morning. And just please give me some grace, I'm getting all of this information third hand and some of it I don't even understand. Um, So everything was fine, pushing on Monday morning and just all of a sudden the doctor said, uh, we gotta go right away, emergency C-section, the baby is in duress. And so, boom. Uh, C-section. <clears throat> Darby's put under. They get the baby out. From what I understand, uh, the baby had quit breathing, and they had to actually resuscitate the baby. By the way, the baby's name is Jamie. They had to resuscitate Jamie. I have no idea what that means. Baby CPR. I, 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 don't, know, I don't know what it means. I just know that they had to resuscitate the baby, that it was very serious, and there were other complications as well. Uh, they immediately trans. Ported Jamie to a hospital that had a NICU unit because the hospital they were in did not. This is Central Illinois, and um, nothing wrong with Central Illinois, but small towns, if you get my drift. So they had to m- move the baby to Springfield, where they had a NICU unit. And so Darby wakes up from surgery and doesn't have a baby, and uh, hasn't been able to hold the baby. Um, they immediately put Jamie into something called. Um, a cold blanket treatment, which immediately, of course, when I find out about that, but maybe afterwards you can tell me a little bit more about this. I'm looking at the internet, and I know that everything on the internet is true, so I can trust that. But cold blanket treatment for 72 hours, which um, is kind of a recent thing, but has been found in these cases to really help uh, with uh, the damage to the vital organs and potentially the brain. I don't know why, but it does. They lower the body temperature to 92 degrees. That sounds really extreme to me, but they lower the body temperature to 92 degrees for 72 hours, and then uh, in the meantime, Jamie needed a blood transfusion because his liver and kidneys were not properly functioning. The blood transfusion fixed that. Uh, They're testing other things and feeling like it's going okay. The next big step was Friday, warming him up. Apparently, the warming up process is a big deal too and um, all kinds of things could possibly go wrong during the warming up process. It takes from six to 12 hours. Jamie did it in seven hours, so he's in the upper 90 percentile on that. Um, So it went well on the warming process, but then the biggest hurdle was uh, yesterday morning they had to take an MRI of his brain, (laughs) sorry, of his brain and his heart specifically to see what damage was done to the brain. And they kept telling Darby, Joey, and my wife Jackie, who's there, and Jody, Joey's mother, that they expect to find brain damage, that there's virtually no way there will be no brain damage. Heart was okay, but the problem was reading the MRI. They also said, we expect to find brain damage, but also it's the weekend, so we probably won't be able to read the MRI until Monday or Tuesday. So um, I don't know why, but Tom Petty's song, Waiting is the Hardest Part, started playing in my brain because it was really hard. And uh, it's been an anxious week. My notes today said that I was going to tell you my heart is broken and anxious, but now I get to tell you that my heart is overwhelmed and humbled. Somebody came in to read the MRI yesterday. And I got a text yesterday afternoon from Jackie that said, the MRI is clear. Followed by about 20 exclamation points. And I'll be honest, I responded to the text with some initials that probably shouldn't be repeated in church. I was just stunned, overwhelmed. Um, So it's good. He's now being treated as a newborn. And that means he's got another 24 to 48 hours to do some other things, pass some tests. But he's doing good. He's feeding well. Darby's feeding him. his, his, his eye contact is good. All the stuff is good. It's been good. He has to get circumcised, so pray for that. That's a bummer. Um, uh, yeah, right. Uh, oh, oh, yeah. There's pictures. So that's Darby with Jamie. Um, there's Joey. Did you already show Jackie, Grandma? She was that smile on Jackie's face. Unbelievable. They, did not, they were not able to hold Jamie until Friday night. That's the first time they held him. So he was born Monday, not able to hold him until Friday. Um, so during this whole time, literally hundreds of you were praying. And I don't mean just in this congregation. And I'm sorry if this is the first you're hearing about it. There were many text threads, and I couldn't keep track of them all. But um, hundreds of you were praying, and not only in this congregation, but throughout the Redemption 10 congregations. Redemption Central offered to send me to Illinois if I needed to go pay for it. Uh, Jackie works at North Phoenix Baptist Church. Two of the uh, people on the lead team there, two of her bosses, said that they would each give her one week of their vacation in order for her to be able to stay. Uh, It's been unbelievable. Uh, So, besides Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, Uh, Going through my mind the other thing that went through my mind and this is tough But I want to I want to tell the story because this helped sustain me this did many many years ago um, Tom Schrader our founding pastor has two daughters Sarah and Haley Sarah uh, Is two years older than Haley Haley is married to Tyler Johnson our our lead pastor over all of redemption and um, uh, When Sarah was 18 she was a senior in high school She was in a car with a group of uh, kids coming back from lunch to the high school, and they went through an intersection. They had the green light. Somebody ran the red light and T-boned them. And Sarah Schrader was in intensive care for about 10 days, and they did not think that she would live. And so, obviously, 10 days spanned a Sunday, and Tom preached that Sunday. And uh, judging by what people had said to him, Prior to him preaching that Sunday, he began to realize that there was a bit of a a flaw in the theology of the people in his church. Um, They they believed that Sarah would recover because God is good. And Tom Tom does stuff like this, Um, and it can be hard to hear, but he does stuff like this. He threw away his notes for that Sunday morning, and he got up and preached that morning for 40 minutes on the subject that, here's what he said, even if Sarah dies, God is still good. And so I was sustained all week by that thought, that no matter how this turns out, it's going to be for God's glory, one way or the other. It's the man born blind, it's, it's Lazarus, it's whatever, wh- whatever happens. So I was really sustained by that. God is good. And I know those of you who are parents, I get it, man. I get it. I'm a parent too. But so is God. So is God. He's experienced all of this as well. And he knows what we're going through firsthand. He knows. And so, whatever happens, God is good. Jesus was crucified because God is good, because he wanted to save us. We need to know that. So, uh, I'm just overwhelmed by the response from all of you and from Redemption Church. Jackie is too. Um, We're not out of the woods. Jamie has another 90 years to live, so be praying for that. (laughs) amazing. I'm just overwhelmed. Um, So I'm a mess too. I have a headache. I'm exhausted. And all of that was to let you know that uh, before any of this happened, I wanted to let you know that I'm going to be gone for the next uh, three weeks. In case you're wondering where I am, I'm going to be in Illinois visiting my new grandchild uh, for a little while. And then I'm going to Uh, Every year in in the middle of May or the end of May, I also take a week and go up to Wisconsin for a week study break. And so I'm just combining all of that. And so I'm going to leave this next week, and I'm going to be gone for a little while. So if I'm not around, um, don't worry. Tyler, Tyler, the the three T's are here, Tyler, Tyler, and Trey, and then all the elders are are here as well. So uh, I'll be gone for a little while, and uh, just thank you for the privilege of being able to do that. Uh, Let me pray, and then we'll get into our message today. Father God, we're just gracious, we're just grateful for your grace, and your mercy and your goodness, your faithfulness, everything that you say you are, we're grateful for that. Make it real to us, no matter what our circumstances are. Help us to understand your word, your word today that tells us that Jesus did something really good and it's going to cost him his life. So I pray that we would see your truth and understanding and wisdom Help me to deliver this message. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going through the book of John. Last week, Lazarus, this guy Lazarus, was dead for four days. He's in the tomb. Jesus calls him out of the tomb. I want, to, I want you to think about the progression of miracles in the Gospel of John. Uh, he starts by, Jesus starts by improving a party. It's his first miracle, he turns water into wine. And then there's a couple of healings. He heals uh, a young man who is near death and he heals uh, somebody who can't walk, so now he can walk. Then he feeds 5,000 people with just one sack lunch and that's significant because it points to Jesus being uh, the provision for God's people. And then he walks on water, and that's a picture of the creator sovereign over creation. And then he takes it up a notch, and this was a big jump here. In the wake of long and testy conversations with the professional religious people who were blind to the truth of God, Jesus heals a man born blind. And then last week he caps it off by raising Lazarus. So Jesus goes from fixing a party to making a dead guy alive. And the more substantial the miracle, the angrier the Pharisees get. And this last miracle we find out today, the raising of Lazarus, is the last straw for the perps. And there is so much irony in these uh, 14, 15 verses, so much, and I hope I get to all of it. But let's get to it. We're going to look at the first four verses there, 45 through 49. So this is right after Lazarus comes out of the tomb. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. Many. Why doesn't it say all? Why wouldn't that say all? I don't know. I don't get it. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, uh uh-oh, and said, what are we going to do, for this man performs many signs, and if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Many believed. Well, who wouldn't? Some of them went to the professional religious people and complained. Not everybody believed. It's fascinating. Donald Guthrie, a New Testament scholar, writes this. Even a sign as remarkable as this will not convince those who are determined not to believe. There's a determination by some people to just not believe. It doesn't matter what we do. And it's interesting. We've had this conversation at Preaching Collective. Uh, Many of us tend to believe that our lack of faith is due to God not doing enough. So if we don't have enough faith, we just blame God. Classic blame shifting. The problem is is that he's done everything. The problem is not God, the problem is us. We need to lean lean in. And so this miracle of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead causes an emergency meeting of the council. That would be the Sanhedrin. That is the Jewish ruling council. It's a huge council, a ruling board. And the board is stuck. They have a crisis on their hand. I found out this week from somebody that I admire and respect that uh, there's a significant difference between a crisis and a problem. And I never thought of it this way and this was helpful. A problem has an immediate solution. The the problem is is that you may not be able to get the solution uh, implemented very quickly. But you know there's a solution. A crisis is when you have no idea how to solve it. You don't know what to do. You've never gone through it. A crisis is when Churches have to na- navigate a COVID pandemic and figure all that out. And there is no easy answer. A crisis is civil unrest, and there are no easy answers for that. That's a crisis, and they had a crisis. They, didn't, they weren't sure what to do. They're weighing their options. And a crisis also, by definition, usually ends up being the choice between two bad Two bad choices. It's just determining which one is less bad. That, again, helps to define a crisis. So here's their crisis. If they stop Jesus, they get in trouble with the people. But if they let Jesus go, they're going to get in trouble with the Roman government, potentially. Uh, We know from history and we know from the book of Acts that the Roman government mostly left the Jews alone as long as there were no disturbances or uprisings. And if there were disturbances or uprisings, the Roman government assumed that they were religious in nature and they blamed the Jews and they would come down on the Jews. So they're nervous about the people and they're nervous about the government. So the language in verse 48, they say our place is threatened. So our position, we like our position. We've achieved this position. We want to keep our position. So this is all about their power, status, and control. But also they say the Romans might come. And then we'll be in trouble with the ruling government. Now here's one of those ironies. They'll be in true-up trouble with the ruling government, a government that they hate. They hate the Roman government, but somehow they've determined that being subjugated to this government is actually better than letting Jesus go. So that's interesting. So they've decided that their subjugation to the Roman government is good compared to Jesus having some measure of influence or power or control or status because all of those things, influence, power, control, and status, are the things that the professional religious people desperately coveted. So those things are the perps, salvation, not God. Those things, not God, are their fulfillment. Those things are their security, not God. They don't find their security in God. They find it in this worldly power and status that they feel like they've achieved for themselves. But as we know, power, status, and control is really fragile and shaky. I think this is amazing. You ask any Jewish religious professional in their context, in their time, you ask them, what's the Messiah going to do when he comes And their vision of the Messiah is that he would come to throw off the yoke and shackles of the Roman government because they hate the Roman government. But here, they want to kill the Messiah, kill Jesus, in order to stay enslaved to Rome. That's just fascinating to me. And they have so little self-awareness that they can't see this dissonance and this contradiction. You and I get into that trouble, too, when we dig in and we refuse to listen and we refuse to allow God to work in our lives and read his word, when we just dig in on a position that's comfortable to us, but maybe not necessarily all that correct, we do the same thing, and we need to be careful of that. And notice, notice that none of these guys are disputing that Jesus is doing remarkable things. Nobody's saying, I can prove that none of this has happened. None of them are disputing any of this. Rather, they are only concerned with how Jesus might cause them to lose power. Uh, Humanly speaking, we should understand that power is a greased pig. The more you try to hang on to it, the more it's going to slip away and slip out of your hands. That's why the power of the indwelling spirit of God is so wonderful and unique. Because the more we let go of our power and restfully submit to his power, the better off we actually are and the freer we are. There's great bondage in trying to hang on to our power. I wish we could understand that. It took me a long time to figure that out. The bondage we're in. Trying to hang on to our own power, which is tenuous at best anyway. And so that leads into just a general note of counsel here. Um, Power and happiness. Two things that lots of us really like and want. Power and happiness, okay? And by the way, I'm not down on power or happiness. I'm just down on them as false gods, which is our problem. But power and happiness, have something in common that's really important to understand when you and I make power or happiness the ultimate goal of our existence our desires and our fulfillment the more we pursue them in and of themselves either one the more elusive they are the more we pursue happiness for happiness sake the more elusive it is the more we pursue power for powers sake the more elusive it is both power and happiness Things this world and our culture constantly tell us are within our grasp. If we just do this or that or the other thing or think this way, they're within our grasp. If you can conceive it and believe it, you can achieve it, all that, all this stuff. Those things rarely come as the result of the pursuit of power and happiness. That's what they have in common. Power and happiness come as byproducts of a bigger, holier, and gospel-centered pursuit of knowing, loving, and following Jesus. We need to get that. We need to understand that. So if you and I pursue happiness for happiness' sake, we're just going to ultimately be mostly frustrated. If you and I pursue power for power's sake, we're just going to end up frustrated. We will. We'll wonder why our life isn't working out the way we wanted it to. And that's ironic, I think. In all contexts, work... Friendships, family, romance. We need to find our identity first in Jesus, and everything else will fall into place according to the will and wisdom of God. And that's what we ultimately want. So here's the counsel we offer. And this counsel is counterintuitive, and it's countercultural, and it's counter self centered, but it offers freedom. Here it is We should seek to be small. We should seek to be humble. We should seek to be invited rather than assertive. Seek to be invited rather than assertive. That means you got to wait. I don't like waiting. There's a parable about that, I think. think. The contrast between Jesus and those on the council is stark. They have all sorts of political ambitions to protect, and Jesus has absolutely no political ambitions driving him. It's probably a lesson there as well. Look at verses 49 through 53. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death." So the irony continues here. There's, this is fast. This is wild. Right here, So Caiaphas, we know, was the chief priest from the year 18 to 36 A.D., and this is taking place probably the year 29, 29 A.D. And what Caiaphas says and what ends up happening, I think is one of the most amazing things in Scripture, and I really want us to get get this. Caiaphas gives the council and the people who are listening, he gives a sneering remark. That contains incredible truth. He doesn't intend it to to contain the kind of truth that it does, but he does. Here's what he says He says, Guys, uh, Jesus is just one man, that's it. And sure, he's popular, but the concern over his death will pass. People have short memories. We have to kill him, but then it'll be over and done with, and a month from now, no one's gonna care, and our power and status will still be intact. The sacrifice of this one man is worth it for us. It's better that one man die than all the people die. Truer words were never spoken, but not in the way Caiaphas meant it. And that's the point of John's editorial comment in in those verses that follow. Jesus' death did save people, but it was a salvation of atonement and redemption and not of preservation for Caiaphas. There's, there's another time in the Gospels when people said something like this, something that was intended one way but was actually true another way. In Mark 15, Jesus is hanging on the cross and the people said, he saved others but he can't save himself. Yes, you got it, you're right. <laughs> the only way he saves everybody else is if he doesn't save himself. You got it, you're right. They were sneering but they were theologically accurate, even using the language of substitutionary atonement. That's amazing. And, of course, in verse 53, this is indicative of the point of no return. In the Sanhedrin's eyes, Jesus is done, and an arrest warrant is issued. And the plot to kill Jesus is at hand. And before we move on to the last few verses, let's consider two things here. Number one, no one. Not one person on the ruling council and there were 70 of them this wasn't like three or four guys there were 70 of them and not not a single one of them questions the validity of the signs and miracles and not a single one of them ever and they're religious professionals Sold out to God, supposedly, they don't question the signs and miracles, and yet not a single one of them says, guys, what do you think God is doing here? Not one. What do you think God is trying to get us to pay attention here? What is God trying to teach him? Not a single one of them. And here's the second thing. The Sanhedrin is the world's first echo chamber. Some of you think echo chambers are brand new and that they've only been brought about by social media. Some of you think groupthink was never a thing until social scientists discovered it. Here's what we need to understand. Affirmation therapy, confirmation bias, groupthink and echo chambers, all of these buzzwords out there on the internet that get us so mad, all of these things are not the result of culture they're the result of human sin it's us but it's just easier to do this right you know that's adam in the garden the woman you put here i I was just standing here man acting like a man for the first time right (laughs) sorry verses 54 to 57 Now, the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should, uh, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. End of chapter 11. So Jesus buys a little bit more time, but yes, he's going to come to the feast. He's going to come to Passover. That's a, that's a, Passover is a pilgrimage festival in the spring. Many would argue the most important of the three pilgrimage festivals. It would be odd if he didn't come, even though he's, he's, you know got an arrest warrant out. The triumphal entry is in the next chapter, chapter 12. But, but for now, for a few weeks at least, he's in a place called Ephraim. And again, I want to look at... John is so good with the words and the names and all that stuff. Uh, this isn't a coincidence. This isn't happenstance. Let's look at the words and the names here. The, word, the name Ephraim was the name of one of Joseph's sons. That's Joseph from uh, Genesis 37 through 50. And we find that name around chapter... 48 in Genesis 48 one of his sons is named Ephraim and in fact uh, He's one of the two sons that was also named uh, As one of the 12 tribes of Israel so Ephraim is also the name of a tribe of Israel So here's what the name Ephraim means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction (laughs) Oh my word, this is not an accident or a coincidence crucifixion is an affliction that is so bad that it defies articulation and comprehensive description, though many have tried. Written papers, talked about it. It just defies that. And yet, that's where Jesus is headed very shortly. And Jesus going to the cross is going to bear the greatest fruit that this world has ever seen, and that is the salvation of his people. That's amazing to me. And notice the language in verse 57, definitely an arrest warrant is out, but Jesus knows how to go on the lamb. You see what I did there. Did anybody see what I did there? Okay, some of you are like, "Eh, I don't know. Does he even know what he did? Okay. He knows. He knows. But it shouldn't be too hard to find him when he does arrive. I mean, he's going to ride in on a donkey. Kind of hard to miss that, okay? And it's ironic I, again, ir- irony. think of it this way. Caiaphas sought Caiaphas sought to use the cross to protect his control. God is going to use the cross to transfer control of our sin to Jesus' atoning sacrifice, and transfers, and transfer Caiaphas' sense of control to a resurrection that he cannot stop. That's beautiful. That's just beautiful. So this is it. Starting in chapter 12, we essentially uh, go into the last 10 days of Jesus's life and his crucifixion and his resurrection. So half the book of John, essentially, is about the last 10 days for Jesus. So I want to wrap up by going back and looking at verse 55 and just making a point here about this. John includes this detail. And we believe that no detail in the Bible uh, is there for no reason whatsoever. The people are purifying before the Passover, so they're purifying before they make the journey into Jerusalem for the Passover festival and feast. Purifying is a part of preparation. The people of God, the Jews, were very much into preparing, preparing to meet God, and purification was a part of that. So they're, they're, here you go. In contemporary terms, they're preparing for church. They're preparing for worship. They're preparing for praise. They're preparing for, uh, to listen to the message. They're preparing for a Bible study they might be attending. They, they're preparing to just read the Bible. They're, they're preparing to enter into a community of faith, an RC in our vernacular here. They're preparing for those things. Now, you and I don't need to purify in that sense, in that religious sense, Jesus has done that for us. But, but that does not excuse us from the needed discipline of preparation, which I don't think we're very good at, myself included. Remember when Tyler Thompson talked about this last fall? Does anybody remember that? So I'm just, I'm just, I'm just hitching to his wagon on this, okay? We need to prepare. We need to prepare our hearts. We need to prepare to eliminate distractions. We need to prepare to mourn our sin and lament the sin of the world. We need to prepare to celebrate. And and here you go. Now I'm really going to start meddling. All of us understand the importance of preparing for other significant things in our lives. We get that. We prepare for that presentation at work. Imagine going into a presentation at work the way you might prepare for church. Shut up, Frank. We prepare for that quiz, test, or exam we need to take. Most, most college students do. Some college students don't prepare and then pray the Holy Spirit will bail them out. I know that for a fact. Okay? We prepare for that. I know, th- I know we do this. We prepare for that romantic experience we wish to create. We prepare for that athletic endeavor we'd like to conquer. We prepare that, for that perfect meal we seek to craft. Now, think about this. We prepare properly I would contend we prepare properly to watch a movie on Netflix or Prime or whatever it is that you watch we we get our snacks together we get our comforters and our pillows and we we get the proper lighting and we we have the clickers close at hand and we make sure the distractions are put away or put to bed if you know what I mean So what is our preparation like for church and for worship and for Bible reading and Bible study or community when you go to your RC? What's your preparation like for meeting God? Now, I'm not saying that the preparation needs to be long or elaborate, but reading ahead the text or praying for the service is an excellent place to start. You know, pray for the service. Pray for those who are serving. Pray for yourself that God would, you know, open your heart and your mind to the wisdom And that you would, that he seeks to impart and that you would, that you would be open to the filling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Listen to the worship songs that the music team has selected for that Sunday and has put on our website for each Sunday service. That's another way to prepare. You can, you can even listen to these songs, by the way, while you're doing something else. You can multitask. You can listen to the songs while you're reading the passage or praying. How about that? So now you're multitasking. It's like the person who says, you know, t- ten, I have a bucket list of ten things. Two of those things are, I want to finish a marathon and I want to go to Paris. We'll run the Paris marathon you've knocked out two. All right? Okay? Um, think about and take action early in the weekend for how to remove things on Sunday morning that always seem to get in the way of getting to church. And I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm a parent. If you have little kids or even big kids, that can be really hard. I get that. But have you ever even thought about it? I mean, have you had the conversation? Here here, here you go, here you go. Uh, This preparation thing is not about salvation. This isn't some some weird way to question our faith or our love of Jesus. That's not what's going on here. But rather, from experience I, I know, and from Scripture I know, that good and thoughtful preparation will make your time with God way better. There will be more joy, there will be more fulfillment, there will be more understanding. There will be an openness to the wisdom that's given by God. And so the call to preparation is about enhancement, not scolding. And we see that preparation here in the New Testament by the people. And it was important enough for John to mention it in the gospel, to put it in there. For people 2,000 years later to be able to read about it. This is an encouragement for us to do something that will only benefit us. The gospel is good, and it can be even better when we faithfully respond in preparation. That's our point. So, let's prepare now for the Lord's Supper, for prayer, for singing our last song today, for giving, time of giving, for the opportunity to be able to talk to somebody or pray with somebody in the wings about Jesus or about something that you need prayer for, let's prepare now for communion, for all of those things. Let me pray as we do that. Lord God, we do ask that we would prepare right now our hearts to receive your table, to sing praises to you through song, to be able to pray, and to be able to just quiet our hearts before you And celebrate the fact that we are saved by your grace. God, and if there's anybody here who doesn't know that saving, grace-filled salvation, I just pray that your spirit would be moving in their hearts right now, that they would talk to somebody. That they would come and come with their questions. Lord God, we praise you, we thank you. We don't always understand it, but you're an unbelievably good God we thank you and praise you in Jesus name amen so if you um, if you're going to take the Lord's Supper if you don't have a a communion kit with you right now uh, now would be a good time to go to the lobby and grab one once you've taken communion you can start to uh, stand if you can to sing this last song Jesus gave his life for us, and we see that in the Lord's Supper. The body broken for us, the the wine or the juice poured out for the forgiveness of our sin. We confess that we need him when we take communion, and we celebrate that we have him when we take communion. So let's do that now.
0: To sing a song as you're taking communion, and then we'll invite you to sing with us in our last song.
1: Majesty, worship peace majesty. who died now glorified
4: Amen, amen. Uh, It's Orientation Sunday this week, so this is the time we try to get to know and welcome any new people. So if that's you, you're looking to uh, get a little more plugged in, we'd love to help you do that. Meet me at the Connect desk, which is just there in the lobby right after this service. I also want to remind you, we're doing baptisms right after this, so in the next few minutes out here on the patio, we hope you'll join us for that. Let me read this as our benediction and sending prayer from Revelation five thirteen, To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Go and live all of life, all for Jesus. We'll see you next Sunday.